0: You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com.
1: Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes and.
0: This is a special podcast. Uh, I talked to Corey Keyes, who's a sociologist and professor emeritus at Emory University, whose research on mental health has had wide reaching policy implications. And over the course of his career, he's advised the CDC, as well as governmental agencies in Canada, Northern Ireland, and Australia. He has a new book. It's called Languishing, How to Feel Alive Again in a World that Wears Us Down. Enjoy the pod.
2: Days can't be
1: counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway.
0: welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Kelly.
0: I was having breakfast with my friend Allison last week, and she's a behavioral scientist, and she's finishing up her first popular press book. And she's been going back and forth with the publisher because they wanted to lose her first chapter. And the thing we both agreed on is that for most books, you can lose the last chapter, but <laughs> but not the first. And But in the case of your new book, I love the last chapter, uh, which is titled Play as Resistance. Can we start our conversation there? Of course, yeah. All right. I don't think people, when they think, I know this because I work at a place that is based in play, uh, that they don't think of the words play and resistance as being connected in any way. So talk to us about what you're, what you're meaning when you say that.
2: Well, a couple of things. Well, and, and we don't normally think of the word play when it comes to thinking about adults. No. Right? Typically. Now, you and I get to work in a profession where Playing around with ideas and uh, working, uh, playing with people with with your ideas is is just part of the fabric of our life. Yeah, and where I'm blessed, and I suspect um, the way you, I saw you, you were smiling when you came on. You get yes, right? I I, I smiled most days. Yeah, because I was, I marvelled at what I had the opportunity to do. Now, most people don 't um, get that uh, blessing let 's just uh-huh. call it a blessing um, i wouldn 't call it a luxury because I think play is necessary, yeah. and I want it to appeal to adults because I think many of us might approach play and take it on if we saw this as a a way of rebelling and 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 kind of pushing back on a world that 's just I think it's asking too much of us these days and too much in the sense of uh, where I talk about in the book, things like we're increasingly we're being demoralized and most people don't really get to spend a lot of time at work, living the values that brought them to their workplace and their occupation and profession and so. If your work isn't bringing you joy and meaning, I think you can step back and find it elsewhere. And play (laughs) is certainly one place where you can say, um, I'm going to stop thinking of time as money and Mm -hmm. time is scarce. And I'm just going to have fun and maybe waste a little time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I just thought, wow. I know my spirit is about um, rebel. I, I like to rebel a little bit. Mm-hmm. When you tell me something to do, uh, and, but you don't t- give me a good reason, uh, I won't do it. And I thought this was a good reason to give people to start playing if they weren't as adults.
0: Yeah, I've talked about this before, which is we we do a lot of work in the corporate sector, uh, a, a lot where they bring us in to do workshops and training. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we uh, when we have framed it as play, no one buys it. <laughs> when, when we frame it as improvisation, they, they get that. They're like, oh, you need to improvise. Yeah, you've got to be agile and you've got to pivot. And got to... But these are all the things that we do when we play. There is so much learning baked into play. And I don't know if you know the origin story of the Second City, but the woman who created the improv games that is the basis of all the training here was a social worker in the 20s and 30s by the name of Viola Spolin. And she invented these games to better assimilate immigrant children coming into her care on the oh. south side of Chicago. So, so it's like, it's so in our bones and it is the stuff that has made stars of all these people who've come through, you know, everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert, they, all that, this is their, 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 uh, their practice. Uh, and yet we can't call it what it is, uh, because people won't take it seriously and what I really felt in that chapter in particular was that you're saying, no, 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 understand, understand how important this is. And also, I thought it was really important, and I'd like to talk about this, uh, that play and leisure are two different things.
2: Yes. And I think we're much more comfortable with leisure, but w- w- what a what a word, w- because it started in the, um, the upper class in about two centuries ago, right? It, it was reserved for the very elite, right, the court and the kings and the queens and Suddenly, all of a sudden, leisure just sort of melted down into all of our lives. And I suspect it's always been there. But we just, yeah. you know, um, I remember coming across Stuart Brown when he and his that New York Times magazine piece where he had the picture, a very old picture, of a village and people of all ages playing. And I suspect it's always been there. But yes, I see I suspect leisure is just play for adults uh-huh. now that said Kelly I was I was fascinated that the research is sh- showing very clearly that too many of us are engaging in too much passive leisure these days and the problem with passive leisure which is sitting there and simply consuming what you think is leisure right does not make us feel good or produce anything close to flourishing but the really active kind where you go out and you do something and you make something happen. And normally we do leisure with other people. Right. That kind of active leisure is um, much more conducive to well-being and flourishing. And so it's, it's interesting to me. Even in our leisure, our life is reflecting our life in general, which is we work and then we, we just plop. And we want to say, I'm done with the day. Yeah. And I, and I get it. I do get it. I understand that. But I suspect this notion of resistance or saying enough and starting to put those, what I call the five vitamins of which play is just one, putting those things back into your life. will go a long way to saying uh, enough with life. Um, I need to change something.
0: Uh so you had me at the beginning of this book because I, when I talk about my childhood, a lot of times I talk about sitting alone in my bedroom and listening to Jackson Brown records because <laughs> I, I had a girl, a girl who turned me down for a date, uh, and. Yeah. And I listened to the King Biscuit Flower Hour on WXRT. So and I hadn't even thought about that. Like those When I saw those words pop up. So talk a little bit about the or, your origin story in terms of writing this book, because it's very personal to you. There's the, this is a, uh, a self-acclaimed bit
2: of me search. Yes, that, oh, my research was all about trying to find more of what I experienced for too short of a time when I was adopted by my grandparents. Yeah, Where before that time, um, before the age of 12, I lived in what is, in many young people live in this, given what we know about the adverse childhood experience research, many of us grow up in. And it's horrifying. And then suddenly I was transplanted Uh into this world of love and safety and trust and warmth. And I marvel to this day. I went from being on detention and and the best grades I could get were D's uh-huh. to being the quarterback and an honor student and involved in everything. And I was like, it was always there inside of me. It was there. And yet I needed the right circumstances for it to emerge. Because if that hadn't happened, oh, I can't tell you, I was going in the wrong direction. And so uh-huh. shortly after, you know, it did. The interesting thing is when you have a chance for you to catch up with the life, with your own life, and that's what happens to me in my teen years. Suddenly, I was there in this wonderful place, and I had a chance to sort of just let my guard down, and all of a sudden, I could feel the hollowness and the emptiness that was there, that was created by my trauma, and, and and I suspect a lot of people resonate with this because I've read stories of addiction and alcoholism. They talk a lot about being hollowed out and how their childhood was not only interrupted, but the person that they w- were going to be was taken from them without their permission. And now they have to live with this emptiness and find something that will replace it. And some of us do it with substance and But I found a piece of work that allowed me to fill that void. And that was creating a vision of health as more than the absence of problems. Because when I experienced my life as the absence of problems, I didn't flourish. I languished. It took me a long time. And so... I. I didn't have enough time with my grandparents. They died too soon. Of course, they were in their retirement when they adopted me, uh-huh. and so I spent my life. Um, I call flourishing my north star because when I'm flourishing and I have those things that go into it, I feel at home here in this world. Uh-huh. When I'm when I'm not, and when I languish, and I do, I feel like I'm disappearing and like I don't really belong here. Because and I'll end here. I we're just like everything else on this planet. We were planted here and everything planted is here to grow. And there's nothing worse than to languish and feel like you're dying inside.
0: Yeah. My buddy, Mike, go ahead.
2: Oh no. Yeah. Yeah.
0: My buddy, Mike Norton from Harvard. I just talked to him and he's got a book on ritual. That's quite lovely. And Mm -hmm. uh, one of the pieces of research that he talks about is this correlation between the correlation around happiness is not to just be, happy all the time. Happy people run through all the emotions. And I Mm -hmm. found that so powerful in the sense of like, like you said, like, it doesn't, I don't care how enlightened you are, uh, you're, you're not going to live just in flourishing. This is very sort of Buddhist, right? You know, the yin and yang. There is no suffering without joy. There's no joy without suffering. And so that idea of at least understanding and being in a place where you can cycle through but not be brought fully down or I guess like in a manic way, fully high, right? Like, like there's, mm-hmm. there's something to just be that and in, in improvisation, we talked about being fiercely present in the moment. And I think that that's what a little bit is running through your book is like, how do we just like pay attention and in paying attention, we can find, find joy and, and, and also uh, find meaning out of our sadness.
2: Yes. And, and I, it was the, part of my story is, is, is as I was searching and doing this research on this construct of good mental health. And, and I always warned people, I use the word flourishing, not to suggest this is an unbearable, unbearable, another standard of success. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a word that was a stand in for the fact that I was looking at mental health as the presence of something good, but it's so much more than feeling good. Yeah. And in order to even get, to that place of just acknowledging and, and having what I would call more genuine happiness. I had to face, I, I couldn't run from my past. Mm-hmm. I had to face it. And for a long time in my career, I thought I was putting miles in between me and my beginning. And boy, when you look in your rear view mirror, it's still there. And I would get triggered and I did not know what, What the hell was going on? Uh And you can't get past those things that want to take you back to your past until you face them. And so no amount of flourishing is going to even feed you enough if you don't face them down that pain. And, and, And I like to think we can make something out of our pain and our suffering. We can do something with it. And that's what I did. And my hope is that my story inspires others who see themselves as completely broken as Mm -hmm. not, that's not the problem now is how you put it together. Because that's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. That is really the, and I didn't write about it, but I was thought, I thought about the Japanese uh, art of uh, Kintsugi. Yeah. Right. That's just a beautiful example in uh, in a metaphor for human beings, let the cracks, let everyone see them, but yeah. that you put gold on them, uh-huh. that you didn't let them break you and tear you down entirely. Yeah. So I-, I think we all have to face that pain and suffering if we're going to really move more and stay longer in that place called flourishing. That's, that was the lesson I learned.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I often, when I'm talking about storytelling, I'm like, no one wants your success story. They want your fiascos. They're funnier, <laughs> and and and, and that you made it through and you're still standing there. I mean, that's that's the thing. So you reference that you were around at the beginning of the positive psychology movement, and you mm-hmm. kind of leave it there. So I'm very, my very dear friend Scott Barry Kaufman uh, had had also sort of worked in that area and is now doing some other stuff. So I'm sort of curious. Like, it's it seems like you sort of uh,
2: went a different direction. Yes, I and I was I don't think people realize that so many of us were already doing this work long before positive psychology came along. And if it wasn't for the MacArthur Foundation, I don't think we would have some of the biggest and most valuable data sets to this day that feeds a lot of scholarship in that field called positive psychology because Um, I was part of the MacArthur Foundation research networks on successful aging. Uh Successful aging was doing what positive psychology long before it came along. And I, I just felt two things were a little, um, I was, I, I just didn't feel comfortable with a movement that didn't pay attention to anything that came before it. Uh I, 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 it, there's no way in my scholarship that I would ever do anything without a deep historical dive yeah. and paying respect to what was done before, because you can't, you can't do anything like what they tried to do without all the hard work that a lot of people were doing quite, quite early and often without all the fanfare that they had. Mm-hmm. And then the second reason was, um, I've refused to separate the negative from the positive. Uh I refuse to, because I I talk about the two continuum model of mental health and illness. And in the very first meeting that I helped organize the summit, I presented my work, and people were like, "Corey, this is positive psychology. Why are you talking about mental illness?" Because Uh I said you can't talk about mental health without talking about mental illness, right? And then second, I I produced a diagnosis. A positive mental health in the same way that psychiatry creates diagnoses for mental illness. And there was this big argument and, and, and I got the sense that they not only did they like the fact, not like the fact that I wasn't, I wasn't um, trying to ignore the negative that I was medicalizing the positive. Mm-hmm. And so it was clear to me, uh, at least at the beginning, uh, I wasn't going to get supported. And and frankly, um, it wasn't like I left because I wasn't getting supported. It was just, it was clear. And I was told by the foundations that we can't support your work because people are already supporting it. And I'm like, uh, that's not true. The national Institute of mental health wouldn't give me a grant to study positive mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And so it it was a curious place. We, um, and people were, and last I'll end here, I mean, they were arguing that there was very little science done on the positive. And yet they were writing books in the first two, two, two to five years like and recommending all this stuff. And I'm like, where's the science for all those things you're talking about in your books? Uh-huh. And I felt that was that was dangerous because they they were trying to champion a field that some of us were already working on long before and trying to do a lot of science to build a case. And if you sold them the public a bill of goods based on flimsy science, they may not like and support this in the long run. Uh-huh. But I think it's changed and positive psychology has evolved. And as, as it's spread around the world and, and across cultures, it's no longer focused only on positive emotions and, and, feeling good stuff. And it's really matured. And so to its credit, um, the the new the new people entering it are, are are changing it for the better
0: it's interesting so you're touching also upon an idea that runs through the book and i'll i'll quote you you say quote our society is fond of admonishing us to take responsibility for our actions if we're not happy we should get up earlier exercise more get more sleep but sociologists like me are more interested in understanding how systems can fail us than in placing all the blame on individuals and this is this this idea of like you know I should be happy all the time and like you can just take a walk and like and and that's that is not always the case and different people are in situations where th- th- they're they they do not know where their next meal is going to come from.
2: No, we have a lot of hardship in this world, and 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 as a sociologist, I know that things in the world need to change. I I know that, but I I've had to live a life where I couldn't wait for for people to make my life better because I, I lost trust. My grandparents were the only people who actually did what I thought caring, loving adults were supposed to do the rest of the time. I don't think anyone gave a to tell you the truth. And I had to face that. And so I do want things to change in the world and systems to change. And it's clear that there's the need, even our doctors are lamenting, the, uh, a, they're calling their healthcare system corrupt. Yeah, right. I'm. That's amazing when you think our frontline healthcare workers are saying this system is sitting on a pile of cash and profits, and yet they want me to cut corners. Mm-hmm. So we have a reckoning. We do have a reckoning. Don't get me wrong, but um, so. <sighs> I'm not going to wait for public health or any healthcare system to catch up with this approach that I've been championing, right? Yeah. And so that's why I recommend in the book. You take, you do at least what some good science says. Go out and do those five things, because don't wait for the world around you to change. And um, meanwhile, let's not let. The system off the hook let's hold them responsible for once let and 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 you know having said that i just i think we have to stop start saying no Mm -hmm. right you you're you're we're going to end your show and say you're saying yes but here i'm going to tell the world let's start saying no yeah and then because i want to say yes to something i want to do that makes me fill my my cup with meaning and purpose
0: so i have a thought about this uh yeah. we, we've just been we've just been talking about this and so uh vanessa bonds was on the podcast and she just uh, co-authored uh a paper uh around saying no and the idea, of course, is that we have, uh, there's some research around the idea that saying no is a violation of a social norm. And, you know, we've seen the studies where people will go ask for crazy things and people will say yes simply because they don't feel like they want to say no, but they want to be judged, that sort of thing. And in the study, what they found is if you want to give people the agency to say no, that they're going to feel okay about their no, you give them a script. You say, if you want to say no, if you don't want to do this thing, just say to me, I would rather not. And the people who did that in the sort of control group were, felt much better about their ability to say no. They didn't, they didn't feel judged. They didn't feel there was a problem. And so I've been toying around this idea that Mm. in some regards, the yes and is all about the spaces the scriptless spaces, the spaces where we are just making something up together, but in the places where we need help, where boundaries are important, where systems are important, that we need people to have better scripts.
2: Yes. Well, because both saying yes and saying no is risky, isn't it? You know that firsthand it's risky, Yeah. but what's, what's even riskier is um, at, at the most, and no and push back at this if it's not true, if you say yes" in an improvisation and it doesn't work out, you've got somebody there who's also doing the same thing with you and and usually helps you out
0: oh have to yeah, that's the rule
2: right, but but when you're saying no, you're saying no" to systems where there's there's repercussions and there's yeah. there could be consequences, and they could say, "Well, okay, then get the you know what out of here, sure, you don't need to work here, yeah, I don't need you, and so it's I, I know. I've felt so nervous sometimes when I when I'm going into a situation where I might have to say no. Mm-hmm. It you it, it's interesting. I you, you get unsettled, nervous. There's a part of you that gets angry because you're unsettled and you get all emotional and worked up. And so what I fear the worst thing could happen is I would say something that I can't take back. <laughs> <laughs> and so giving me a script would, would, would keep me really on, where I need to be and much more confident and calm. So it's, I feel good about it, and it's more likely to be received
0: yeah and um. it's 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 an act of grace. I mean this is like if we if we want to exist in that in community and this is one of the problems right? I mean and you and I are both of a generation I think we're culturally it was so much about the individual and the needs of these individuals for good reason to, to be able to be themselves and and that it's okay if you're different and all that is true, but we seem to have lost this idea that we live in community and we are responsible to each other. And that requires us to balance these things, these two different things.
2: Yes. And I, and it's fun. It's, it's funny, not in a way, but it's odd because I think in order to throw off the yoke of things that have held us down, we have to go to the extreme and then come back. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think what our society has been going through is like people have been plucking the strings of the guitar one at a time and it's, it's reverberating while they're, they're throwing off the yoke of, of oppression and whatnot. One group is, you know, plucking this string, it's all turbulent and they're saying, no, I don't want that. And everyone feels like, well, that's a threat to the community we had and know what they're trying to do is find their way to come back and create a place that's better for all of us. That's a hard process to go through. Uh-huh. And I write about that in the, one of the chapters of the vitamins about how change is so unsettling, even when you're making improvements. It, I did research on that. Right? People saw themselves getting better and working on becoming better people. They saw themselves as growing and becoming better people, but they didn't feel as good as people who were staying the same. And that's that's an interesting thing, because I think we've been going through this process of, you know, some of us were very comfortable with the individualism, and others were not, and for good reason. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been going through these, shall we say, shocks of people saying No. I can't do this anymore because you're painting me in an unequal corner. And that's not the life I want anymore. And I'm glad they can say no now because we do need to change. But change, even when it's it's an improvement, it's very unsettling. Yeah.
0: I think it was Fitzgerald who said the key to intelligence is holding two opposite ideas in in your mind at the same time. And you note in the book that Americans are particularly terrible
2: at this <laughs> I'm sorry i'm that's a wonderful connection yeah we are the least dialectical oh, when no. it comes to emotions uh why I don't know where that comes from kelly but is i intriguing. know no i mean our version of happiness is it has to be almost pure you yeah. can't be in in a single day you can't have a little bad uh, because it, even if you had 10 versions of good but too bad that would somehow taint but in other cultures you could have five good and three bad and you could still say i came out ahead and this is a good day now i just find that fascinating and nobody's put their finger on where that comes from and why but there is this notion of i think there's a form of perfectionism even when it comes to our well-being
0: yeah My therapist, I I I can't tell you how many sessions uh, of therapy. I love my therapist. At the end, where I'm like, "Oh, isn't this just Buddhism? Like, what, what, (laughs) like, like what? This has already been here. This is like ages old." It's like, "Oh yeah, no, nothing. I'm 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 leading you nowhere new. Uh, We are using ancient wisdom, and yet over and over, we don't seem to pay attention. And in particular, I, I really I was quite interested in your." Your particular take on mental health, mental illness, and, and those words are important. And mm-hmm. I realized when I was young, I got my hands on Thomas Sass's book, The Myth of Mental Illness. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I read this. I don't know why I still remember I read this, but it clearly had an impact. And I didn't go back. I didn't have time to go back and be like reread or summarized. I tried to look up some stuff. But was was he saying anything like what you are saying with regard to our... Um, uh, uh, our, our, our bad relationship to mental health or our bad metaphors or whatever it is.
2: Yes. I, Oh, he, he was a psychiatrist who was um, one of the most vocal anti psychiatry at the moment. Yeah. Because he was saying, I, I think there was this idea that somehow we, people had a problem taking normal emotions and, and saying, well, who are you to, to decide for others when something that's a normal reaction, a reaction, an expected reaction, and suddenly it's abnormal? And that's going to be with us forever because that's that's the terrain of mental illness, right? Sadness is a normal emotion. Yeah, you should yeah. feel this when you have loss. Fear, a normal emotion. You should feel fear in many circumstances because it does something It prepares you for something that you probably will need to do. Mm -hmm. And both of those emotions can become pathological if you persist in them. Right? And yet, I think what Sass and others were pushing against was, um, why do we, are we doing anyone a service by pathologizing expected and normal reactions to abnormal circumstances? Right? Right. And that's this brings me to the, the thing that I think every listener needs to understand. Languishing is a normal reaction to a lot of things. Now, the problem is, even if it's a normal reaction to, to things like demoralization, if you stay there too long, mm-hmm. just like if you stay in sadness and, and fear too long and it persists and it's too strong, it becomes bad for you. Yeah, and I think um, anti psychiatry um, uh, was also, of course, against this institutionalization of the severely mentally ill. And that's a whole nother ball discussion because I mean, we threw the baby out with the bathwater there rather than improve the institutions. We deinstitutionalized them and created homelessness um, early on. Yeah. Most of the homeless started with deinstitutionalization, mm. so they had. Um, it's funny how this, but the main thesis that it connects with my book is that you, you have to be careful when, when you say that something is becoming abnormal, because it depends where you're sending them. Are you sending them to a place that's going to help them or control them? And when Sass was writing, it felt like the, the medications were there really just to control un, um, people who weren't convenient who said things we didn't want to hear and sometimes were um, reformers even. Uh, so there was this fear that psychiatry was being used by political power, power elites to control um, dissent. Uh-huh. Wow. And I, I hope that doesn't happen with languishing. Cause my, my, my hope is that people say, um, um, like we said earlier in the show um, enough with, with the systems that are, are really destroying my soul, <laughs> is mm-hmm. this right, right? Enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: one of the things that you uh, talk about towards the end of the book is this idea of, of practice, and this is fundamental to our work. When I was just in a workshop yesterday, and what when and I got a question about you know what we're working with this group for a year. And I said, the point the point of us working with you for a year is that when, let's just take listening. So we do a lot of listening exercises. I'm like, it is not something you normally practice. You do not practice listening. No one is teaching you listening. And yet it is so fundamentally important. And you look at top performers across fields. Mm-hmm. If it is a musician, they practice the scales. If it is a major league baseball player, they are literally playing catch before a mm-hmm. game. Why do they do this? Because they want to be elite at what they do. And do you think that if you were a better listener by say 2%, that that would make a difference? And everyone across the board is like, yes. Like, two, yeah, even 2%. Yeah. And, and this is something that, that you write in the book, quote, when you practice for a play or a recital in school, you rehearse again and again over and over to be ready for, for, for performance night. Over the course of many rehearsals, you increase your intention to act a certain way. When the time comes, most religious and spiritual practices are just that, rehearsals.
2: They are. Isn't it's, it? Yes. And, and it's a rehearsal to treat the world more sacred. Yes. Yeah. Right? Treat, treat, treat everything around you as if you're walking on sacred ground, because you could be something that, that emerges, could be love kindness, all of these good things that you want, right? We all want those things. And yet, I don't think we're prepared, not only to receive them sometimes, but barely prepared to give them. Because if there's one thing I, I will wax poetically about that I think is just the amazing thing about religion and spirituality, I call it the reverse logic. Mm. It's not the logic of every everyday life where if you do one plus one, you get two. In in religion, you, you have to give to get. Uh-huh. Right? You don't just take or you don't just always sit there in the nest with your mouth open so everyone brings you, right? No, it's this reverse logic. If you want love, you have to give love. If you want forgiveness, you have to be forgiving. Yeah. If you want kindness, you have to be kind. Be- it's bad. I, th- I don't know why we're, it, we reject everything because we've had bad experiences with religion, but we're throwing out so much more with it because I worry that I'm, I, I, underst- I get it. I know why people are, uh, balk when you talk about religion and spirituality, yeah. Yeah. but tell me what in its place is helping you rehearse to become a better person for other people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know there's certainly movements that are trying to do the same thing, uh, mm-hmm. not in a cathedral or mosque. Yeah. Um, uh, C- Casper De- Ter- Quay is, is a, a, a guy who is at Harvard Divinity School, and he, he he's very in- involved in sort of these ritual spaces. It could be Harry Potter, it could be mm-hmm. you know book group, it could be, and and I and and I think that there are. And I certainly feel that way about myself. I, we are not churchgoers, yet I, there, my life is fil- filled with rights and practices. But I also, my job is working at a place that also does those things and is steeped in play and practice and, and philosophy and, and, and all those things. So I might have a, a heads up because of, of where I work. It's interesting, too, I, I overbooked podcasts for the last two weeks. So I have like three uh, in each week. So I've had to read a lot. Uh, And and so I'm – but the gift of this actually is these different people in wildly different areas talking about kind of the same thing. So this afternoon I'm interviewing Jerry Colonna. So Jerry is like the CEO whisperer. That's how I know him. He's been written in books. And this book is about generational trauma. It's a leadership book about generational trauma. I can't wait to talk to him. Um, I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. And then Emily Freeman, who is – I don't know if she's a minister but she she is a very religious person jesus is all over this book jesus comes up every every couple of chapters but this book is called how to walk into a room
2: <gasps> yeah. and, the,
0: and the book is about the way we walk into the rooms the way we leave rooms and what how, how meaningful that is yeah. and i can't help but tie these things together and these people who are not connected in any other way are coming back to the same thing which is like we can do this better and we yeah. don't need to be cynical
2: now, exactly. I was amazed as well, Kelly, when I, I was looking out into the books that were um, what, what what was coming up recently. Yeah, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a lot of books about burnout and exhaustion.
0: Oh, yes. As well.
2: Yes. Yeah. And, and I think well, isn't it interesting? I, I I'm I'd love to hear that discourse if if they get beyond the sort of practical nuts and bolts stuff of you know challenges and stress at work to also realizing. That's just a part of life. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're the first ones to come around feeling exhausted and having to, to work hard. It's, but it's intriguing to me that all of these things on top of this exhaustion and and then I use the word wear us down, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Right. It's you get this sense that we there are people responding to this, but I. I love the way you put it in In thinking about all these things together. We're trying to find a better way to be better people in the midst of all this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that is remarkable. And we don't hear enough about that about ourselves when we turn on the news or look in the media. We are trying to become better in the midst of all this. And that's not the messages that are fed back to us. No. No. I don't.
0: I don't. I I I wonder if we wildly underestimated what COVID did to all of us with regard to hitting that pause button. And I know it wasn't hit for everyone, mm-hmm. but, but when I, when I taught, my wife is a professor and I'm basically tons of my friends are in academia and they the teachers are just so scared for the kids and, and in terms of their ability to navigate in in a way that 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 feels unprecedented in terms of, yeah, it's going to be young people are figuring it out, and there's always this stuff, but it's different. Something is different, um, and I think you know, um, the, the the could it be that when we told everyone to take a, a year away from everyone else, that the damage <laughs> was significant? Because it it feels to me with everything you're talking in about in your book that, well, of course it was because yes. we, we, we are not human without other humans. And then if you're told, especially a young person, you can't be with other humans, like what are you doing to them?
2: Well, and, and I loved, and I knew John Castiapo, who was a professor at Chicago, who was, he pioneered social neuroscience and his work of the brain, when it's experiencing loneliness and pain, is remarkable because I thought what, what what it reminded me of is I think we were all feeling isolated and that isolation from the group is an aversive signal. Yeah, right. I think we were our brain was sort of telling us danger, danger. Um, you are isolated, and we were experiencing that isolation in the same place where any all other forms of physical pain are processed. So it yeah. was very real. And it was palpable. And we could do nothing about it. We could do nothing about it. Yeah. And normally, in the tribal culture that our ancestors, white, w- w- for thousands of years worked in, when they were isolated, they, they, they could do something about it. And doing something about it gave them redemption to, be, to return to the group and the safety and care of the group. We couldn't do that either.
0: No. No. No.
2: And in fact, and then we were getting all these confusing messages. It was like, yes, you can do that. Oh, F to the wind. We don't have to care about it on others saying, yes, you should. Because if you do this, you're caring for others. So it was extremely people don't deal well with uncertainty or confusion. Yeah. Yeah. They don't do well with isolation, especially when it's forced any more than when I talked about where I had to go sit in the corner with a dunce hat on. It didn't feel good. No. No, and I I don't think we're processing it, Kelly. I don't think we're processing we're moving on and we're just so happy that life has gotten back to some normal. And just like me, I I carried my trauma with me. Uh-huh. So the people who had done it to me were long gone, but it lived inside of me. And every time I looked in the rear view, it was there until I dealt with it. And I think that same thing is going to happen to people because the pandemic is, o- is over for now. But that trauma, and I think it was a trauma for many, uh, yeah. uh-huh. it's going to live w- inside of you now. Yeah, Until you face it down and see if you could learn something from dealing with the pain that it caused. Yeah, I think that's true. All right, we always
0: end the podcast asking for a yes and story, so I think let's go from trauma uh, to a yes and story. <laughs> well,
2: I my one of them, and there's several. Um, I got I got married as a, 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 a an undergraduate. Um, mm-hmm. I was uh, in, in August, and my and my wife and I decided we were going to. Um, Go do a study abroad. I didn't decide right away, but she said, "Well, let, um, let's do this." And I was like, "Well, we would have to leave five days after our, our, we get married. Mm-hmm. So not only would we be saying goodbye to everyone, we would like be going far away." Yeah. And my my, my and I had a grandmother. You know, she was up in age, and I knew she wouldn't be with us yeah, much longer. But sh- I said yes. And we ended up in Poland in 1986. Wow. 1986. Yeah. People don't realize that was still communism. Yes, it was. And it was a remarkable experience to see um, the last gasp. Right. It was the last few years I had to. So I saying yes to that and doing it with my wife. And um, I think it was one of the most remarkable experiences. It's bittersweet because my grandmother died before I could get home. And she was so determined to see me off in the world that she told people not to tell me that she was not doing well because she knew I would come right back.
0: Right, 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 right.
2: But so it was a bittersweet experience and a great learning experience that, that every generation plants a seed. And and as long as they seed you off, um, it's okay. You have to let them go and they let me go. And a new life was started. That full circle moment, if I hadn't said yes, I never would have experienced it. Um, and so... That was the start of a life together that meant saying goodbye to a life to my Nana. Yeah. That gave me essentially a a very different trajectory.
0: Oh, I love that so much. The book is called Languishing, How to Feel Alive Again in a World that Wears Us Down. Corey Keyes, thank you for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me, Kelly. It's been wonderful.
1: Getting the Yes Hand is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com, or you can email us directly at, works at secondcity.com.